Hello, and welcome to Spur Radio, featuring the best of the Spur Festival, a national festival of politics, art, and ideas. I'm Michael Booth, director of production for Spur and host of the Spur Radio podcasts. This episode, Political Tribalism, takes us to the 2016 edition of Spur Toronto and features a conversation with Eric Grenier, Susan Delacorte, and Martin Patrickwin, moderated by Jane Hilderman of Samara, Canada. Eric Grenier is the founder of 308.com, a website that tracks political polling in Canada and electoral forecasts, and is the CBC's poll analyst. He has written for The Globe and Mail, Huffington Post Canada, Hill Times, Le Devoir, and L'Actualité. Susan Delacorte is a political writer and columnist with the Toronto Star, a regular panelist and commentator on CBC, CTV, and global television, and the author of four books on politics. Her latest book, Shopping for Votes, How Politicians Choose Us and We Choose Them, was a finalist for the 2014 Hillary Weston Writers Trust Nonfiction Prize. Having covered politics since the late 1980s, Delacorte has won and been nominated for numerous awards during her career-long coverage of Parliament Hill. Delacorte also teaches at the Schools of Journalism and Political Management at Carleton University. Martin Patrickwin is the Quebec Bureau Chief for Maclean's. A Montreal native, he has spent much of his career writing about the frothy politics and distinct societies that make Quebec percolate like no other. In addition, he is a political commentator on CBC's Power and Politics and has contributed to Radio-Canada and the BBC. The National Magazine Award winner has also written for the New York Times, The Globe and Mail, National Post, Walrus Magazine, and the Literary Review of Canada. He is a graduate of Mount Allison University in beautiful Sackville, New Brunswick. Our moderator, Jane Hilderman, is the executive director of Samara Canada, a nonpartisan charity dedicated to improving political participation and strengthening Canada's democracy. She oversees a dynamic team that builds innovative research projects and effective programming for civic learning. She frequently speaks to audiences and national media about Canadians' participation in democracy and the role of members of Parliament. Hildeman has worked for government and opposition MPs on Parliament Hill through the long-standing nonpartisan parliamentary internship program. Spurs' festival partner is Shirk, the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. Our national sponsors are Wawanese Insurance and the RBC Foundation. Our performance sponsor is the Access Copyright Foundation. Our government funders include the Canada Council for the Arts and Canadian Heritage. Spur Toronto's programming partners for 2016 include the Toronto Public Library, Global Diversity Exchange, Samara, Lifeline Syria, Women in Leadership, Diaspora Dialogues, and the Literary Review of Canada. Our media partners are the Toronto Star, Now Magazine, and Daily Extra. Political Tribalism was recorded live at Hart House in the University of Toronto on April 10, 2016, in the final days of the U.S. presidential primaries and on the weekend of the New Democratic Party's post-2015 election leadership review, both referred to in the discussion. The panel is introduced by me, Michael Booth, the Spur Festival's Director of Production. We hope you enjoy it. Very pleased to have you all here with us. As part of uh, our discussion of the new tribalism, you know, we've had many, many conversations on, on, on feminism and masculinity yesterday and various ways we segment ourselves into different groups. And so many of those conversations and those issues lead to public policy discussions. And it's very difficult to have a public policy discussion without getting into politics. So here we are at the penultimate panel about to discuss political tribalism and some of the changes that we've seen happen in recent years. You know, used to be families often, your family, was a liberal party, a liberal family, or they were a CCF and NDP family, or they were a conservative family. And sometimes that changed provincially or federally, but 
those days seem to be gone. We've seen parties implode, we've seen them disappear, we've seen the membership of political parties drop to, to 1% of Canadians. It used to be far higher. We also see a new generation of people, though engaged in important public policy issues, finding their way through the political process less through the established political parties. And in fact, we're seeing right now, if you were in Edmonton, one political party that has been around for a long time in this country, provincially and federally, going through its own conflagration about what to do with its future and what its membership wants. So we have a very illustrious panel of journalists and pollsters and people who, who deal with this, these issues every day, and they're going to have a, a conversation with themselves and a conversation with you. The moderator for this panel, who's going to introduce the other panelists, is Jane Hilderman. She's the executive director of Samara Canada, one of the supporters of uh, the Spur Festival. I'm going to hand it over to her, and she'll introduce the rest of the panels, and please enjoy political tribalism here at Spur Toronto 2016. Thanks so much, Michael. As Michael said, here we are sitting in this room while a larger room, 1,700 Canadians in Edmonton is going to decide the fate of one of our other political tribes, so to speak, uh, today. I've given our speakers uh, the permission if they check their phones, if they want to have some live <laughs> updates during our panel so that we're making it live and interactive as possible oh, really? so they're not yeah. being rude if they're the on memo. their phones. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so our theme today is political tribalism. And I was trying to think back to where tribalism in that modern sense uh, was a concept I first encountered. And I think it might have been on my parents' couch in high school watching Survivor which, if you recall, is organized according to tribes. And so tribes are, by their nature, both binding in a positive way, but also blinding at times. And you know, you're not supposed to buy in only 80%, you're supposed to buy in 110% to your tribe. That sounds sort of dangerous on the outside, but I'd hazard, if you've been walking around the city this weekend, you've seen a lot of blue. I'm wearing blue today, um, and I think it's safe to say Toronto is a, a tribe in itself in the Blue Jays. My point just being tribes are emotional identities. We want to have them. Um, we want to belong to a tribe. And so these are really powerful forces that can uh, shape our politics. And today we have a really great panel to try to help de demystify what that means in Canada for our parties and voters today. We'll be asking questions like, do we even have such things as loyal voter bases in Canada? What about in Quebec, where there always seems to be a slightly different political pulse in that corner of our country? How are parties reacting to the pressure of fickle voters? And what lessons are there from the 2015 federal election that seem to break a lot of those rules of, sort of general rules of truth? We had voter turnout finally go up significantly, and that was driven in large part by younger voters showing up at the polls. So, I have questions, hopefully there's some answers. Uh, this afternoon we're joined by Susan Delacourt, probably a very familiar face to those in the room, a political writer and columnist for the Toronto Star and iPolitics. Eric Grenier uh, is the founder of 308.com, a website dedicated to polling in Canada and electoral forecasts, which makes him Canada's Nate Silver, or if I may, <laughs> makes Nate Silver er the Eric Grenier of the United States. <laughs> Martin Patrick Quinn, Quebec bureau chief, for Maclean's Magazine rounds out our panel. He's a Montreal native, has spent most of his career writing about the frothy politics and distinct societies that make Quebec percolate like no other. Welcome everyone. 
And I've said, I, we're going to give each panelist five minutes to sort of have an opening salvo uh, on this topic of tribalism, political tribalism in Canada. Uh, and so I thought I'd start with Susan and Eric and then move to our more Quebec focus with Martin to round it out. So on this, uh, I, I thank you, by the way, and thank you all for coming out on a day when a lot of political junkies are glued to a stage somewhere else. So I thought I'd start with, uh, like, right in this riding, because that's, I, I did an interesting thing almost by accident the last election campaign. The very second week of that super extra epic election campaign, I came down here to Toronto and I stood on a street corner with Jennifer Hollett for a morning, who is the NDP candidate in University of Rosedale. And I was surprised by two things. Um, I deliberately came down here to see how the Liberal NDP battle was going. And I was surprised by the fact that, first of all, everybody knew an election was underway in the middle of the summer, which is good news for those of us who are keep being told that nobody cares about this stuff. Mm. Um, I was surprised by how many people said we were gonna, they were going to decide the day of the election. They, were, they, they knew they were voting against Harper, which is not surprising in the University of Rosedale. They didn't know what they were going to do until the very end. The very mm. last day of the election campaign, the Sunday before the Monday vote, I came back here and I went out with Krista uh, Freeland instead. And the people at the doors were still saying, we're going to decide tomorrow morning. And that told me that people no longer have a fixed idea of what they're, you know, people like, uh, who've been studying polls and public opinion like Eric have been telling us for a long time, is that people are not attached to political parties anymore. Not only do they not join them, they don't even base their decisions on them up until they walk into the ballot box. So I think I'm of the view, and I'll give a little shout out to my own book here. Um, when I was doing that, I came to the view, and I think others have too, that the days of partisanship kind of died in the 1980s. And what the book details is how this mirrors what happened in the consumer world, is that Alan Gregg, the famous pollster, uh, told me that before the 1980s, they used to be able to predict what kind of brand of detergent people would buy, what kind of car they would buy, based on what their parents had bought. People did a lot of their buying choices out of brand loyalty. But in the 1980s, brand loyalty totally blew up. It blew up in the car business, you'll remember, with all of, we used to have Ford, GM, and Chrysler. And then all of a sudden we had Toyota, Honda, uh, you know, all kinds of smaller brands. Same thing happened in the political world. The big brand parties blew up. All of a sudden we had Reform, The Block. So I think that trend that started in the 1980s, we now have, and I think, you know, it's become kind of cliche and fashionable to say we're living in post-partisan times. But I think that the parties learned to talk to people. My book's premise is that because people didn't have party loyalty, they learned to talk to people through other identities, which was mainly consumer identities. I think the last election was an interesting one in that the parties decided to talk to people not just as consumers. There was a lot of talk about social values in the last campaign because of refugee issue and immigration and the NECAB, those debates made it a more complicated conversation. But I think that the Liberals probably won because they were the party that didn't really have a base they were talking to anymore. They understood that you've got to talk to as many people as possible. 
And if you'll note, the Liberals borrowed two, actually, I used to say before that, the election, that I wondered if Trudeau was the third in a series of inexplicable crowd movements that rose up and then just vanished. There was Occupy, just sort of rose up and then vanished. Then there was Idle No More, which kind of rose up and vanished. And I wondered, because I traveled with Trudeau and saw these crowds, these unbelievable crowds showing up on one night in Winnipeg, uh, 40 below on a Friday night, 400 people waiting at 10 o'clock at night to see him. And then I realized in the election campaign that the Liberals had actually, and still to this day, are stealing bits of Occupy. There's a reason they tax yeah. the 1%. There's a reason that Trudeau talks about Indigenous Canadians as the most important relationship, because he's taken from these movements. And you'll see what he's trying to do with the party if you've been reading the papers. They're trying to redesign the party to get rid of party membership, to expand the idea that people no longer are going to just join the Liberal Party because it's a great brand. They're going to join the Liberal Party because they see something in it. And I think that's a testament to the fact that loyalty doesn't really exist in parties anymore. A couple of years ago, not so, just sort of only half mischievously, I wrote a column about we should do away with political parties. And the reason I gave for it was, first of all, I think a lot of the worst things that in politics, the things we hate about politics, are usually committed in the name of parties. That nonsense in the House of Commons, mm. the robocalls, the party financing we're seeing in Ontario. A lot of that is happening just because of the party system. And actually, it's my belief that some of the most interesting politics in Canada now is municipal. And some of the most interesting people are mayors who have united other political parties. So I think a lot of the most successful people you see now in politics are people who have switched parties. And also we've done away with the subsidy, the public subsidy for parties. So I don't think we'd be suffering. I don't think Canada's democracy would be any poorer if we actually had a serious conversation about making our federal politics less partisan and maybe doing away with parties whatsoever. So uh, I'll drop that as a little yeah, bomb and say, we can... Uh, that's about a mic <laughs> drop on a panel like this. Uh, <laughs> Eric, <laughs> if you have uh, your thoughts too on the post-partisan world, do parties have bases? Do parties have well, a purpose? First of all, it's a nightmare to think of how you would pull a bunch yeah. of independents, <laughs> so I don't like that idea very much. But uh, when we often think about uh, political tribalism, I think uh, often we think about how things are in the United States right now and really how they've been for a while. Now Susan had sent me something uh, when we were yes. first uh, going to be on the, this panel and I thought it was very interesting. It was oh, yeah. comparing the approval ratings uh, for pre American presidents based on which party you were from. So the difference between the approval rating of, for example, a Democratic president among Democrats uh, compared to that same president among Republicans. And from about the 50s to the late 70s, uh, there was, a, it would be, the difference would be about 30 points. So let's say there'd be an approval rating of you know, 80% among Democrats for a Democratic president. Republicans would, maybe half of them would have a, a approve of him. Uh, now, it, it increased in the 1980s with Ronald Reagan, and it's at its highest point uh, right now. Obama, the difference between uh, his approval rating among Democrats and Republicans is about 70 points. Holy so in the States, we've been seeing this uh, polarization and, and this increase in that polarized uh, environment, that partisanship, and it's in one part because in the states it's different than here. In the states being a democrat is something you actually are. You register as a democrat 
you register as a Republican or you register as an independent. But being a Democrat, being a Republican means something. You can say, well, you know, my daughter is uh, you know, with a Republican or with a de Democrat, and that means something. Uh, whereas in Canada, it's not exactly the same thing. People aren't like, well, he's a new Democrat or he's a, 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 you know, a, a big L liberal. But what I think we have in Canada is we do have a, a kind of political tribalism, but it's not based on party uh, affiliation. I think it's based more on ideology. Uh, because after Susan sent me that, I looked at uh, the approval ratings of our leaders based on whether you're a liberal voter or an NDP voter or a conservative voter. And for Harper, Harper was a very polarizing leader, and you'd see that his approval rating among conservatives would often be about 90%, and Trudeau's, for example, approval rating would also be about 90% among liberals. But liberals and New Democrats would have a single-digit approval rating of Harper, and conservatives would have a single-digit approval rating of Trudeau. Why, why this was interesting to me is because when you looked at comparing to the United States, you did see actually a wider uh, gulf than you do see for Republicans and Democrats and Obama. But you also saw that New Democrats had a good opinion of Trudeau. You saw that liberals had a good opinion of Mulcair. That if you look at the polls right now, one of the problems for the New Democrats is that uh, you can get about 60, 70 percent of NDP voters, people who say they will vote NDP, who say they approve of Trudeau. You can't get that among conservatives. You'll get, right now it's about 10, 14 percent or something like that. So I think it, it, it splits instead between uh, people who have a conservative ideology and those who have a non-conservative ideology. And that's why we don't have the same kind of uh, tribalism here. In the states, elections are decided by the 5 to 10% of Americans who will actually change parties. There's 90% of Americans who are going to vote for the Democrats or the Republicans no matter who the nominee is. In, the, in Canada, we saw in the last election, 20% of, of voters who didn't vote for the Liberal Party uh, just four years ago, now voting for the Liberal Party. Oh. You saw 10% of New Democrats, 10% of Conservatives who left those parties. And in Quebec in 2011, uh, you saw about a third of Quebecers g voting for a party they had never voted for before, and who a lot of them didn't even know that, you know, the, I, I remember reading a, a post-election thing about someone in the gas space saying they voted for the ADQ, uh, Jack Layton's party. Uh, which obviously is not a <laughs> party. Um, so it's just an example of the kind of movement we saw. We saw, we saw about a quarter of Quebecers uh, not voting for the Bloc Québécois after voting for them for decades. Uh, so we can see this movement, but this movement often takes place on one side of the spectrum, but it's not because people say they're liberals or conservatives or New Democrats, that they're part of this tribe. Uh, the tribe, if one exists, is the way that people are just looking at politics. And there's this one group of voters, this other group of voters, and there's many parties on one side, there's one party on the other, which is why we have, we've had the results we've had in the last few elections. But there is that attachment, but it's, it's more about what people feel maybe inside, if you want to get a bit too uh, emotional about it, but rather than you know, who they voted for, who they have a party membership with. Uh, so we have an element of, of tribalism, but it's, it's not organized, it's, it's, and it's not uh, in any way uh, like we see sometimes in the United States. It raises some interesting questions for the purpose of platforms and making policy promises if it's about emotion, mm. but Martin. I, I'm going to talk uh, less about federal politics than I am about provincial politics within Quebec, because that's the part that I concentrate most on, on my job, and uh, certainly when there's no federal election going on. And sort of the way I see uh, Quebec um, provincial politics. Essentially, pol uh, political tribalism is alive and well in Quebec, and it's not going anywhere for any time, anytime soon. Uh, and sort of this is, this is why. Quebec is a, is a big L liberal province in the sense that it has been governed uh, by one party 
throughout most of its history. Uh, the Quebec Liberal Party will be very happy to tell you that they're the oldest Liberal Party in the country. They're there since Confederation, et cetera, et cetera. They've dominated po politics and political, political discourse. Opposition parties, two Liberals, uh, so significant opposition parties, uh, ones that have sort of made a dent in the Liberals, have actually come from the Liberals themselves. Um, you can think of Union Nationale, uh, Parti Québécois, the ADQ, the Equality Party. These are all parties that uh, started by people that were in the Liberal Party and just had enough of the status quo and start, went off to start something. Usually they peter out and or sort of lord of return to the very comforting embrace of the Liberal Party, with the exception of the PQ. You know, the PQ came in in 1976, came in and, and made some very, very impressive, very socio-democratic moves, uh, worker, workers' rights, women's rights, uh, labor reunions, uh, and more recently, you know, um, universal daycare, this kind of stuff. Very, very progressive stuff that sort of fits in line with what you'd think the Quebecers sort of headspace, collective headspace is, that is to say, left to center. The issue, of course, is, is separatism. Quebecers are both for, and it's the most frustrating thing to watch, uh, Quebecers are both for and very ambivalent about separatism. Even today, you know, everybody says that separatism's dead, blah, 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 blah. If, you, if Eric uh, goes out and, and uh, or someone that Eric is talking to goes out and, and, and uh, polls Quebecers today, there's a 30% of people that are going to say that they would like to separate Quebec from Canada. And that's a, that's a very, that's a large number, but at the same time, it's not enough to seal the deal, so we're sort of stuck somewhere in the middle. And the, the effect that that has had is basically the liberal government comes in and says, doesn't, ha doesn't offer any sort of great hope or any grand vision for what's, what the, the province should be and the province's future. They basically come in and, and run on the unofficial election tag, which is to say, vote for us, we're not separatists. It, it has basically, in, in my opinion, has sort of atrophied the political class. Because there's a very natural and a very uh, understandable uh, on the part of a voter to come out and say, if you're, if you're unsatisfied with a political party, you go in and you vote the bums out. I mean, history is littered with this sort of thing. Uh, the one in Ontario, of course, that everybody talks about is the fact that Ontario went from an NDP government to a conservative government. The United States does it all the time, going from Republican to Democrat. The difference in Quebec is that notion of voting the bums out is very, is alive and well. The problem is, you have to take an extra step in Quebec. You have to say, if I want to vote these bums out, I'm going to vote for this progressive party over here that is going to offer me XXX, and they want to separate from the country. And it just doesn't fly. You know, we have the effect of, of uh, people being in, in entrenched camps. And that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the history of Quebec right there, as far as the uh, politics are concerned. Now, there's, uh, there's obvious, there's, there's some variations in there. Rise of the CAQ, which is a, sort of a, a right of center party. The PQ itself started off as very much an urban party, started off in Montreal, uh, and has become less and less so. It's become very white and very rural. Uh, they won 17 ridings in Montreal in 1976. They won six last time, but still came to power based in large part on that rural, very white, very francophone base. I went through a thing in 2010 where I wrote a cover that Quebec, Quebec was the most corrupt province in the country, and I caught all sorts of hell for it. Because uh, people, people were saying, you know, oh God, you're attacking Quebecers, you're attacking Quebec. I wasn't attacking Quebecers, I was attacking the very thing that I'm talking about right now. I'm attacking the political class and the political culture in, uh, in, in Quebec. The Liberal Party does not deserve to be in power right now. They are demonstrably corrupt. They've had a history of that, of that corruption. They are massively self-entitled. Uh, and they come into power simply out of, out of fear of, of, going, of, of going against the status quo. And it's, uh, and, and it's too bad. 
So I wrote that cover, what was it, 2010, with Benam Carnaval with a case full of money and all that, and it haunts me to this day. It's, anyway, anytime anything happens, someone calls me up like, oh, is Quebec still corrupt? Anyway, but so, so, uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, so I, I, I had, I, I, I'm going to end with a, with a very self-indulgent quote, which is something, um, something that was written right afterwards, and I'll, I'll just have to read it straight. It said, for 40 years, politics in Quebec has been a war between entrenched camps, not only on the left and on the right, but, but between separatists or federalist line as well. On one side, we have federalists whose perpetual goal of saving the country, quote-unquote, has brought an equally enduring sense of entitlement among many federalist politicians. On the other, the sovereignists who purposefully, purposefully stymie Canada's political machinery, if only to show that the whole, to what extent the whole mess doesn't work. We're totally stuck. I wrote that six years ago, and it is an ode to Quebec's political tribalism that not a thing has changed since. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Martin. I want to probe a bit further on this notion of of motions and values, and even in Quebec this is being played out in some really controversial debates around the Quebec Charter of Values, mm -hmm. and then in the federal election we saw the NICAB issue blow up in Quebec. What is like this notion of values and the emotionality of our politics good for our democracy? Is it because it's reaching more people and engaging them, or is it bringing to light these rifts around the, ethnic the identity and our, our symbols? Yeah, I mean, there's an adage that, that elections are never the time to try to solve any problems, right? <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, the, the whole NECAB thing that we went through in the federal election last year uh, was basically a, a slight refrain of what happened in Quebec in 2014 uh, in the run-up to that election, whereby the issue of the NECAB was used as a, basically as a war horse for the PQ to try to get into to sort of, it was essentially ethnic nationalism. So, no, I don't think that's healthy at all. I think it was, it's a very, very dark chapter as far as politics are concerned. Uh, and any time it comes up, you know, to talk about issues like this in the context of a campaign to try to win election votes on essentially fear is, uh, is not a good idea. Susan, you can see it, arguably, <laughs> like, it, you can play to fear, you can play to hope. Like, there's both ends of the spectrum when you're dealing with emotion and politics. Yeah, and I think there's a, a general sense when there's cynicism about politics that people play to, they think that fear works better that fear is the easy way to, to arouse, as, as Marty says, tribalism. Uh, the problem is, is that once you let that genie out of the bottle, there's no exactly. getting it back in. I agree. I think that little chapter in the election was one of the darkest periods we've seen, at least in recent history in Canada. There was a, an awful lot of nasty stuff going on there, too. So I don't, I don't think it's just as simple as fear and hope, but I think that that would probably be another reason that we don't really want tribalism in politics either. I, I was thinking about it in the context of journalism too, and it had maybe not be specifically on topic, but a long time ago, I realized the difference between journalists and politicians and why we would never get along with each other. I had this epiphany at a 1993 conservative leadership contest and Jean Charest was running and all his people were wearing turtles on top of their heads. And it was supposed to be the tortoise wins the race. I, I don't know anybody in my world who would wear a turtle on their head. And it... We gotta talk. Yeah. <laughs> but it is, there is an element, I think journalists you will find usually were the people who didn't join groups, who don't join tribes. They're sort of the standoffish and are sort of intrigued, sometimes puzzled, sometimes dismissive of 
what makes people get so excited at a convention they would not only wear a turtle on their head but make lifelong enemies, things like that, has always intrigued me about politics. I think we could probably move past it now too. And in the, the Quebec case too, I think their journalism works differently than ours. I think the fact that tribalism still works in Quebec and has that, that force, you see it too that you still have in Quebec elite consensus, you still have people paying attention to the media in a way that they don't in, uh, in English Canada. I think politicians now use uh, circumvent around the elites and opinion leaders in English Canada in a way they couldn't afford to do they in Quebec. Do. That's yeah. probably true. So I, I just think there, there's always been an interesting tension bet between journalism and politics about this notion of tribalism. But I think as journalism gets democratized, I think you see people becoming less, more like journalists yes. and less like the old partisans. Eric. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that uh, we saw in the last election, I, I agree it's not about just fear and hope, but you can see that in the last election, 2011, 2008, when you look at the turnout, which was not very good, uh, there was a bit more of a playing towards, towards uh, fear and, and why not to vote for this party, why not to vote for that. And that is, can be a winning argument when uh, maybe if, if one party is making that argument but another party is not arguing against that, then that can win. One of the reasons the Liberals did so poorly in some of the previous elections was because a lot of their people stayed home. Not that a huge amount of their supporters went to the Conservatives, although some did, uh, and then in 2011 went to the NDP. But in the last election, we saw the Conservatives having the same sort of approach, uh, which had worked in, for them in the past, but because the Liberals were using a bit more of, a, of an aspirational kind of message to get people out to vote, to give them a reason to vote, we saw turn up turnout go up and you saw the Liberals increase, uh, support increase and they won a lot of ridings where uh, their vote came out of nowhere. It's, a lot of the ridings that they won were ridings that had uh, some of the highest increases in turnout from the previous election. So you had all these people who either didn't vote in the past or had never voted before coming out to vote because they felt motivated to have a reason to vote. Uh, just in the Saskatchewan election, that uh, it was a very dull one. Uh, one of the journalists out there is telling me that they were just reannouncing things. They had nothing else to announce by that point, and it was like a four-week campaign. Uh, and turnout was not very good. It was in about 54, 55%, if I remember. Uh, but because the parties did not really give anybody a reason to vote, the Saskatchewan party was running on, we're just going to kind of continue. We can't go back to the old ways. The NDP was like, they're, they're a bunch of bums. And people just weren't interested. So I think that that uh, plays to uh, whether you play for that, that status quo or you play for that, let's... You know, let's vote for something. And we're, I think we're seeing that in the NDP today where they're voting in favor of the, the LEAP Manifesto, which is a very aspirational document, which can motivate some people, uh, but whether it'll appeal to voters, we'll have to wait and see. Can I say something? Actually, the NDP convention is a really interesting phenomenon that's going on right now. Yeah, it's a weird thing that's going on there because the, they are asking NDP partisans to choose a leader when really the fate of the party and Tom Mulcair will be decided by Canadians, people who are not partisan. You know that Tom Mulcair doesn't need the votes of the people who voted the NDP for the NDP in the last campaign. That wasn't enough. He needs the votes of other people. So I think it, you've seen parties, we've talked about this before, it, it is a strange phenomenon that, that partisans are picking somebody who is expected to appeal to anybody but the partisans. So maybe like on the point of parties as movements instead of organizations where you buy membership. By the way, I'm just curious, who is a proud card-carrying member of a political party in this room? 
Oh, wow. pretty good, pretty good, more than 1%. Yeah. So, okay, so some people still will buy in and own a card and, and pay their $5, $10, and now conservatives have raised the price to $25, um, which is a, a sort of an interesting fork in the road where one party's saying, like, let's raise the bar for mm. what it means to be a member, and another party's saying, let's open it up. Um, by saying you don't need to pay anything, you can just be loosely affiliated, which is arguably a which more American. The, the, that's the supporter category. Supporter Ooh, category, yeah. exactly. Which, playing it out, is this just because na the nature of knowing who your base is, Eric, as you mentioned, like the conservatives actually having a base that there's no other party to appeal to, so they kind of can be, a, they have a bit of a monopoly on that voter, or yeah. is this, you know, well, one party not embracing the change, the future of politics, which is a much more loosely yeah. based well, identity. I wonder, I wonder if liberals are doing something that's just very new and kind of a, a new thing in Canada, whereas the other parties are, are staying, because that's kind of just how it's been done. Mm -hmm. uh, but the Conservatives and, and would, would certainly argue that uh, you know, knowing a lot about their supporters is good. They, they have won previous elections primarily about getting their base out to go vote. Uh, so for the Liberals, the last election, like I was saying, they won all these new voters. So to, to move the, to kind of try and make it into a movement, which is, if you would look at the advertising during the campaign, which, which Susan would have done, they had came out with a, a, an ad in the last week or two in Brampton, where they had this huge, they filled a huge arena, and, and they made it look like, you know, get on board with this, with this movement, right? So that's how the Liberals might be doing it. And we're seeing that south of the border with Sanders. Uh, Bernie Sanders has the same kind of advertising that you know, you can join us, you can join on to this movement and not, you know, we're not weirdos. We, we look at all these people who are supporting us. Like, this is a movement, get on board. Uh, so it's, it's, it might be a, a better approach in the new, you know, social media world. You know, I'm not sure what, what the argument would be for keeping a $5 membership or 20 pub or increasing it, I suppose they have the reasons. I, I talked a lot about what's wrong with Quebec political culture. The good thing about it, and, and Susan mentioned it there too, is that the people are very much engaged in, in the political process there uh, in terms of consumption of, of news or what have you. Um, turnout for elections there is consistently higher than the, than the Canadian average. It's extraordinarily uh, high in provincial yeah, elections. Yeah, and so, so, I mean, as cynical as people might be, they still go out and vote, which is, uh, which is heartening. Yeah, I think, as for the, the difference in approach, uh, Eric will know this better, I think, than, than I do, but there was an interesting schism that started to show up in the polls, I think, in the last year or so, which was that conservatives, the base, had no second choice, right? If, mm. if they didn't want to vote uh. conservative, there was no second choice. The liberals based their whole election strategy on the fact that they could be people's second choice, that... that uh, they wanted to get as many people, you know, conservatives might say, you know, I'd never vote for New Democrats, but I might vote for liberals. Uh, New Democrats might say, I'd never vote for conservatives, I might vote for liberals. That's a fork in the road or a, a, a very stark schism between the parties. The conservatives need, because that's the way their party has constructed itself, is a party of no second choices, where the liberals are all about second choices. Let's just extract ourselves for a moment from the electioneering to the governing part, where if you get elected with a movement, does that actually make a difference in how you choose to govern? Or are the pressure still the same in terms of actually having a very clear, consistent message, being looking like you have everything together, there's no, no one going off message, so to speak? How, how do we reconcile the sort of reality of governing, in part thanks to pressure from media, pressure from citizens, and this much more open flexible voter ID during election period? 
I, a, an interesting thing that's happened, available in uh, <laughs> this book, she said to give it another shout out, that'll be the last, I promise, is that what the liberals are doing may look very democratic, and it yes. is on the face of it. This, uh, the, everybody knows what I'm talking about, this whole change to abandon party membership. But what it does is take policy making away from the grassroots, that all political parties now have tried their best Harper did it first, the New Democrats followed, which was to get rid of all those regional you know, hierarchies and basically leave the leader flexible enough to go to the databases rather than those boring policy resolution things every two years. Basically, all the parties are now flexible enough that the leader and that little group at the top can go to the data, party databases, which they're all building, for their policies. And I'm intrigued by the way the parties have all stopped going to outside pollsters. Donna would know this. The parties don't go to outside pollsters anymore. They bring them in-house. They and have their own, yeah. They have their own. And the Liberals Party pollster during the last election was a guy named Dan Arnold, who used to be a blogger known as Calgary Grit. He is now installed in the PMO as the Director of Advertising and Research. So you see that basically the same tools they were using to go to the databases and, and doing internal polling and marketing is now part of governing as well. So anybody who thinks, I wrote this a couple of weeks ago, anybody who thinks they're going to a policy convention for a party to vote on something, to push the party in the direction, is probably a little delusional because the parties are going to do with their sophisticated databases and centralization exactly what they want. Does that translate to, uh, to provincial politics? I think it's getting there. I think yeah. it's getting there. Because that's the, the hard, like the, the party system is far more ingrained or it seems more resistant to change than federal. Yeah. Um, uh, certainly in Quebec, but Ontario as well. The one thing I would say, though, about, about uh, governance, you know, after an election, when you're in government long enough, you become what you hate. Um, <laughs> you, just, you just look at the recent history, you go from Chrétien came in and, and was going to do away with the corruption of the Conservatives. The CPC came in uh, to do away with the, the self-indulgence of the liberals, and then you know, so and so so forth. I don't I don't really see how that's going to change. We've seen it even the past few days with, with yeah. Trudeau, you know, with the justice minister going out and and going to a $500 fundraiser, uh, and then yeah, having journalists call up the party and go, okay, well, fundraiser, fine, it's Elections Canada purview. Uh, why don't you tell me who was there? No, we're not going to tell you. This is a government that ran on open. Open, openness and transparency, and not six months into their mandate, they're pulling the same stuff that the Conservatives were doing. Another they case put. for abolishing them. Um, on that note of like governing, and there's obviously a really live question in, at the federal level around electoral reform, which I think is an important question around shaping the na like how parties are going to be structuring themselves in order to win if the rules of the game shift. And I was curious if you guys could look into crystal balls and sort of see if you will, how a shift to a maybe a more proportional system, will it bring greater fracturing to our political culture or is it an opportunity for better coalition building, which we haven't al always seen mm. as a part of our, a I feature of our politics? I think it would be, if it was a proportional representation, I think there would definitely be much more fracturing. We just saw that, I was just listening to uh, an interview with Avi Lewis, who was behind the Leap Manifesto for the NDP, and he was saying, he was asked the question, uh, why don't you start a new party? If you know, if you can, and he said, "Oh, if we get proportional representation, I would definitely do something like that." Hmm. So I think that it's very likely if we, if that, if that's where the thing goes, you might see the NDP split into two. One that's, you know, you might see the Conservatives split into two, and then the Liberals 
you know, people filtering out to that. So that would easily happen. But if it goes to a preferential ballot, uh, which might be the more likely outcome if the Liberals end up just making the decision, um, then what Susan's talking about, about being second choice, that the Liberals are, are ideally placed because they yeah. are people's second choice and they would likely do very well under that system. But it does... Uh, a lot of people focus on the fact that the Liberals would likely benefit most from a, a move to preferential ballot, but it does, again, go back to sort of how, where I started. If the New Democrats were polling in first place, they would likely be the ones who would benefit rather than the Liberals just because there's that larger group of, of voters that, that, um, that don't support the Conservatives. But in terms of the tribalism there, if you did have proportional representation, then you, can, you don't need to water down your, your wine a little bit. You can vote for a party that's much more... Uh, to the right, to the left, that's, you know, that has different policy. You don't need to group together into this one big body, which is how uh, the first past the post system requires that you have big parties with big uh, bases of support among yeah. a lot of different demographics so that you can win all of these ridings rather than getting 10% support in each of them because your, your, your appeal's too narrow. Yeah, I, I think basically it, the choice between preferential ballot and proportional representation is how much you want tribalism in politics, right? If proportional representation, we're going to see more because people don't have to compromise. And I think it is entirely possible the Conservatives would split back into the old reform and progressive wing if it was proportional and then just agree to come together to govern. And the NDP might well split into, into groups. But I think I like myself the idea, just as a journalist, I like the idea of a preferential ballot because I think it starts conversations with people and I think it would take some of the toxicity out because you'd be constantly mindful of not insulting somebody too much because they might, you might want them as a second choice. I think it would take a lot of the polarization out of... I, one thing I've been very happy about that Canada, it seemed for a while we were heading down that road to a stark left and a stark right, which is really tribal and really unhelpful. And I think the more parties we have in Canada, the less tribal and partisan will be. So I, I'd yeah. be in favor of something that saw a, a lot of voices still. The one detrimental effect of uh, electoral reform, proportional representation, is that you could, you could have a situation where you could have a prime minister that doesn't have to speak French because he can be voted. Yeah. He, he can be, and that's... Uh, I mean, that's not yeah. good or bad. I personally think it's bad, but I, I mean, it's just it's a statement of fact. And it, I, I think if they're going to do anything, it has to be seen through the lens of that, because uh, having a prime minister who doesn't speak any French is, uh, is not something this country has seen for a long time, and it's, it would do yeah. a lot to alienate Quebec. I think that's still a factor, though, when they decide who leads any party. You know, they're talking about it for the Conservatives. No, no, I, I, I know. So. I, they're talking about the Conservatives, for sure. And I, I, think it's, I think it's a bit doomsday to say that they would actually do that. The mm -hmm. thing I'm saying is that they potentially could, whereas right. they can't really right now. So I've been dominating uh, with my questions, but I want to open the floor to questions from the audience. We'll start with the lady in green. I just wanted to point out that in the description of this session, there was an emphasis on the role of young people, mm. um, and that really hasn't fun. been touched yeah. on at all. Great. Role of young people in shaping our politics, or not. Rejecting parties and choosing to make a difference outside the system. And Quebec's been interesting. You're right. There's lots of engagement, but young people are keen to hit the streets thinking about the student protests. Uh, yeah, years ago. yeah. I mean, the the student protest was a, was actually a really good example of of, of uh, tribalism in Quebec and how the 
political culture ignores a lot of the youth vote there. Just in case you didn't, can't remember that about in 2012 we had nightly uh, protests in Montreal against the Chirag government uh, for various reasons, corruption, university tuition, et cetera, et cetera. It sort of morphed into something and it morphed into something that was like blatantly anti-liberal. And it was, it was heartening to see whatever the destruction of the downtown Montreal aspect of it kind of sucked, but it was great because you had people that were actually engaged and actually willing to go out. What happened though in 2012, despite massive, massive unpopularity, Jean Charest came very, very close to winning the next election and the Parti Québécois eked out a, a, a minority government. In any other situation, in any other sort of developed democracy in the Western world, Charest would have been, would have been decimated. The Parti Québécois would have gotten crazy support because they're, they're the natural, the second ruling party. And that didn't happen. That was a, an unfortunate mark against our political culture. Has it shaped, it, like, in the young people you've spoken to since, like, rejection of politics because they couldn't see the change happen? That Reje they rejection, of, I mean, it depends. There's, there's certainly that, a little bit of that, but there's also, there's other parties now. Like, there's, you know, there's Quebec Solidaire, which is, uh, which is nominally separatist, but very, very lefty, very, probably to the left of the current NDP. And they've done a lot they've sort of been the, 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 the beneficiaries of a lot of the, of the, of the youthful vote. You still, see, you still see people, you know, young liberals, you see people that are excited to be liberals in, in Quebec, which is, uh, which is flabbergasting to me. You, see, you still see parti people, young Parti Québécois people that go out and engage. I don't know if it's more or less, but it's significant. You see a lot of it in Quebec. Eric, could you maybe speak quickly? Because a youth vote as a term mm -hmm. is always, I find, yeah. challenging because it treats young people as a monolithic, a monolithic right. voting block. Yeah, well, the youth, there was a movement to try and get more younger Canadians to vote. Uh, in the last election, we'll have to wait and see. Elections Canada will probably crunch some numbers to decide. It does seem like turnout did go up, whether it was disproportionately among the young. That's we have to wait and see. But uh, I think what's happening in the states is an interesting uh, thing that Bernie Sanders' support uh, is very young. He he dominates the under. Despite him being very old. Despite <laughs> yes, despite the fact that they could probably be his grand, maybe great grand. Anyway, but uh, yeah, very and, old. Um, this goes to show you, it's not always about the no, young charismatic no, leader. You, don't you can have an old charismatic leader, And that, yes. that's why it's actually kind of interesting, yeah. because he's not saying, look at me, I'm embodying youth. He's saying, I'm speaking to what's important to you. Uh, so I think that's, that's an interesting example of a way you can do it, how he is trying to build sort of a movement around issues that are very dear to, to younger Americans whether that's a model that could be followed here, but whether it's, it's, it's a useful model, because for all that Sanders is doing pretty well in the election, he's still not likely to win. Uh, and we're seeing that when the New Democrats are talking about following Bernie Sanders, following Jeremy Corbyn in, in the United Kingdom, someone else who's struggling uh, for the most part there, that youth vote is still the Shangri-La of, uh, you know, if we can only get them to come out and vote, they will support a, you know, yeah. our party. But um, it's still a struggle because I think there is a detachment that young Canadians feel from the political process. Why get involved if I can, uh, you know, do a, a protest on the street or Occupy or that kind of thing? That's a much better way to get my voice out than to try and do it through the system, which is, for the most part, uh, designed not to, you know, allow people to to uh, to get that message through through the ranks of the organization and everything. I, I, I just add the Occupy Idle No More. Uh, social media, Facebook was a very important factor in the last election. Again, we're going to have to see the Canadian election study and that, but those new voters uh, in the last election, youth may have, have determined the, of the, uh, the outcome of the last election campaign. And um, I think all the parties you're going to see talking to them in ways non-traditional that um, 
fly beneath the media radar, but they're already doing it. A question at the back, since you're close. Hi there. Um, we've seen in the U.S. very extreme tribalism this election cycle. Uh, so I have two questions. One is, do you see anything trending in Canada that could lend to that? And the second question, is there any hope for the U.S. returning to a more uh, democratic uh, environment? No. <laughs> I know on a Canadian political tribalism panel, we get a question about U.S. politics, because that's yeah. Canada's politics. Um, who wants to tackle U.S.? I'll I'd say one tiny thing. I'm not sure that is tribal. I think it's just a rejection. A typical Bernie Sanders supporter and a typical Donald Trump supporter might have a lot in common. Mm. You know, they don't, the, a lot of the things they hate about politics and about the way the system has been running right now is very similar. They don't like the banks. They don't like uh, big business. They don't like the system as it is. So I'm not sure that's tribal as much as just this massive disruption and rejection. The my favorite, a yeah. bit like a circle, right? Yeah, it's uh, my the, favorite uh, tweet of the last couple of months is um, a comedian, I can't remember his name, who said, the only explanation for what's going on in the United States right now is that America is in its last season and the writers have gone crazy. <laughs> <laughs> the system in the States is, is, is designed to be tribal and the way that the uh, districts for the, for the House of Representatives are gerrymandered so that you're more worried about losing to the more extreme uh, candidate running for your local primary than you are to losing to the person from the other party. Uh, the system in the United States, a lot of people say it and I, I'll, I'll agree with it, is, is mostly broken and needs some sort of change, which I guess is something that Sanders is trying to, uh, to bring about. But yeah, I think, that, I think there is that, still that tribalism, the Democrats and the Republicans, but I mean, when you look at the Republicans, there is tribalism there. The Trump supporters don't seem to like the, non, you know, the, yeah. the non-Trump Republicans. So uh, it does seem like a very highly charged atmosphere at this stage, and I don't imagine it'll get much better. better. It's got to, I mean, as far as the U.S. is concerned, it, the, the Republicans are in for a huge reckoning. Uh, if Trump wins, even if Cruz wins and Hillary wins, Hillary's going to destroy them. Uh, what you've seen over the last several months isn't a, isn't a conversation amongst Americans saying how great Donald Trump is. It's Republicans coming out and saying that. It's an echo chamber. Um, Republicans don't determine elections in the United States. Democrats don't determine the elections. It's the independents in the middle. Uh, and the Republicans have basically gutted that to, for, for, to the Democrats' uh, uh, benefit. So I think what's going to happen after the next election is, I mean, well, I don't know if it's going to happen, but if, it, if the Republican Party was smart, they'd, they'd find a way to cut off the extreme edges of the party to, uh, to, uh, to, make, to bring them back to electability, essentially. And that's an interesting point, because in theory, it's supposed to be, that discussion's supposed to happen inside a big party. Like and it did. It did. It, it, happened, did. it happened after, uh, after Romney uh, lost. There was a, there was a report yeah. that came out and, and basically said, we have to be less white, we have to be less male, yeah. we have to be less rich, we have to be less... The uh, answer, Donald Trump. Yeah. <laughs> and then, so then, so yeah, well, exactly. And then yeah. they, they, they turned around and did the exact opposite. That's and to, to, to the Conservative Party in Canada, the Conservative yes. Party's yep. uh, great credit, um, they recognize this. Uh, I think Rowan Ambrose is there, and I think, uh, I think the reason that you're not hearing so much from J people like Jason Kennedy anymore is because I think they realize that they're, they're toxic, to use the, mm -hmm. to use the term, is, is, is toxic to their brand. Um, they're not, it's not, has, haven't been nearly inclus inclusive enough, and we've got to get to that. So my question is geared more towards youth. Now, um, this past election, I worked with Elections Canada, and something that I noticed that, although overall in Canada, uh, a lot more youth voted, 
but in my writing, uh, it was very little youth that came out actually. Now the ones that did come, I asked them, so why did you come and vote? Some of them, most of them would say, I just came with my parents, or you know, I just turned the age of majority, that's why I showed up. Um, and then uh, my friends who didn't want to go and vote, they would say, oh, you know, it's old fashioned, who does this now? Um, so my question for you is how can we get youth more involved and make politics more relevant to them, especially now that we lack this party loyalty in general? Maybe there needs to be a bit more uh, education in, in school about it. When I went to school, I don't remember too much about the civic duty to vote or anything like that. There's not a lot of teaching the history anymore. In some provinces, I don't even think you need a history course to pass high school. So there's not as much of a sense of what it is to be a citizen, maybe, than there should be. Uh, there's a lot of focus on you know, what gets you a job, but maybe not as much focus on what, what, it's, what it is to be a good Canadian. I, I think that, I mean, with, with Trudeau, Locked out. I mean, I mean, with the Liberal Party locked out with Trudeau, he's a great, he's a perfectly structured, shiny object. It's like this guy. No, he, I mean, he's and he's you know good looking. He's smiling. He doesn't say anything that is approaches being negative. Everything is happy. Uh, um, he yeah. takes a good selfie. It, well, it, well, yeah, yeah. He and, doesn't take them, by the way. He doesn't, yeah, I no, guess it's I, technically not a selfie. Yeah, he, I just, I, I interviewed him and uh, I, he said, guess how, many sel guess how many selfies I have in this phone? And I said, I have 40,000. And he said, <laughs> uh, wrong, zero. He said, I just appear in them. I, I don't appear, in, them. I appear yeah. in pictures. Well, although what was interesting during the campaign, I uh, heard a story that he often takes the phone because he, right. he's very he, good at it. Yes. But I mean, that's part of his appeal, right? That he, he, he is... He comes out and does that. He's, well, no, but that he's... It's harder to imagine, uh, you know, Stephen Harper or Tom Mulcair knowing how to take a phone with an iPhone. Well, yeah. You know what I mean? And, and it's not, not against them, but I mean, it's just that Trudeau is able to appeal to younger Canadians because he's, he's trying to put himself almost in their shoes, right? And, and not, like, it's part of the, his, his campaign strategy is to, you know, he, be he, more one of the, the people. One he of the is people. the minister for youth. The, the, uh, the example that I, that I used uh, I, I was, when I was at the CBC at one point was uh, when, when Trudeau was at that gay pride parade. I think it was in Vancouver. Yes. Uh, and uh, a topless woman ran up to him and took a picture with him. Now, I, any leader in the world, and I include Barack Obama in that, uh, would have been, it would have been a, a catastrophe probably in terms of PR and all that kind of stuff. What's Trudeau do? He's just got his shirt rolled up. He just puts his arm around her. He's like... <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it worked, uh, and he got away with it. And that that spoke volumes to me uh, yeah. in terms of uh, in terms of his ability to to sort of run with things. And uh, and I I think to, and whatever. There's a lot of criticism to be made of Trudeau, but I think it's a it's a very very good precedent for what po political party leaders have to do in Trudeau. the future. So this is a good point because I, I was at the Manning conference in March, and young people came up a lot. Eric, and you're saying, talking about Bernie, like often the progressive issues are where you find young people lining up on the political side, but conservatives are also very interested in trying to find a way to connect to young people. Do they have a shot? Is it just about picking the perfect leader? I think so. I think, they, I think the, 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 what the conservatives have to do, and they've showed their hand a little bit with Ambrose, is to not have a Harper in there again, is to not have someone of that ilk, uh, shouty, ultra-partisan, perpetually angry, you know, given to secrecy and bouts of whatever Harper was doing, uh, and, and, and have someone that, is, uh, that can actually speak to a broader spectrum of, of, of people. And again, to their credit, I think that is very, very, underst it's, it's understood by the base of the party that, that that's something that needs to happen. Okay. I think it's also the case, too, that young people often care, and more power to them, 
about global and international issues than they do about domestic ones. And I think that is, this, I've been kind of critical of him, not mildly, for how much attention he's spent. You know, it looked like he just wanted to become prime minister so he could travel. Uh, he's been zipping around the world, hanging out and doing celebrity stuff. I'm not saying young people just care about celebrity, but certainly making a global name for himself is not a bad way back into appeal and interest to, to what young people are interested in. We have a question from a public fellow from, of the Spur Festival who's been at all the panels. So my question, actually, I was hoping to bring it a little bit back to, to young people. And, and during that discussion, we heard the term selfie come up quite a bit. But for young people, we care more about just a selfie. It's great that I can take a picture with the Prime Minister, but what about the actual issues? And thus far, I would argue, there hasn't been meaningful engagement with young people on actual policy. And so I'm curious to hear from, from the panel, what, what do you see in terms of this government, but also the other parties in terms of actual meaningful engagement with young people? I, I think they are actually doing meaningful engagement through social media with young people. I actually do think a lot of that is going on. That's why they're building this database and that's why it, the emails and the, the incredibly annoying contact with the, uh, <laughs> the uh, liberal, if anybody subscribed to the liberal party list, it's like 90 times a day. But I actually do believe they are trying to engage with people on that level and it's not through the old ways of re so. waiting to read in the Globe and Mail editorial what you should I think they are talking, they've found other ways to talk to the electorate. And just because you're not seeing it doesn't mean it's not happening. To be a bit more pessimistic, I think it is a bit more of a cost-benefit you know, ratio for parties. Young people within parties are often the most engaged, right? They're, they're very uh, engaged in, 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 in policy and politics and that kind of thing. But the average young person is not that engaged in, in just going out to vote. So parties are still making the same calculation that you know, when the Liberals uh, changed the, the tax base uh, and, and it was for people who made between 45000 and 200000 that wasn't exactly for young people. It was for a huge huh. portion of people who vote. And uh, that's still the calculation that's being made. They want to, I think that the, the focus for young people might be a bit more about getting those very engaged people to volunteer, to be part of the party, uh, so, so, but l less about getting those people out to vote because I think they still make the calculation that a young person is, you know, 30, 40% less likely to vote than an old person. We only have so many resources we can spend on getting these people out to the ballot. So there's still that element of, of pessimism that I think cynicism maybe. But I think there is still, I think there is going to be increasingly a bit more of a, a recognition that this is a, mo a, a there's the tools are there to mobilize those voters today that maybe there wasn't in the past and that maybe they just haven't figured out exactly how to do it yet. Have a, youth, have a youthful uh, looking um, uh, Prime Minister, Ella Trudeau, having people like that come in as the face of the party, uh, arguably, it's entirely cynical, is that you hook enough young people to come in to follow the party. Some of them are going to fall away, but some of them are going to stick with the party. And what happens to young people? They get old, and then they start voting, and they fall into that territory where they start making you know, $40,000 to $200,000. Uh, and that's, that, that's how the machine works. Young people will only be young people for two elections. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you'll, you'll be old for political strata just had yeah. on. 
<laughs> Thank you guys for a great panel. Thanks a lot. Um, I'm going to pass Mike back over to Michael. Thank you very much uh, to Susan Delacorte, Eric Grenier, Martin Patrick-Quinn, and our wonderful moderator, Jane Hilderman, for, uh, for a great discussion on political tribalism. Let's give them a good hand. We hope you enjoyed this edition of Spur Radio Political Tribalism with Eric Grenier, Susan Delacorte, Martin Patrick-Quinn, and moderated by Jane Hilderman, recorded live on April 10, 2016 in Harthouse at the University of Toronto. The festival director of Spur is Helen Walsh. The programmers and producers for Spur Toronto in 2016 were David Weiss, Miranda Newman, and Harrison Lohman. My name is Michael Booth, director of production. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Stay tuned to Spur Radio for more great content from past festivals, and please follow us on Twitter at SpurFest, and visit our website spurfestival.ca for information on upcoming festivals and events, and to show your support for our national conversation. Thank you for listening.